Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we have heard your word. We ask for your help to understand it and obey it. I ask for your help to speak. I ask for your help for each of us to listen. Be the teacher. May we be good students. And we ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, this may be the most famous of all the miracles performed by Jesus. And I think it would be for the person who's been in church all their life, maybe even to the person who's, this is the first time they've ever been in church, it's probably likely that you've at least heard of the feeding of the 5,000. As far as popularity of the stories of the Bible, this is about as popular as they come. And it's the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all cover this one miracle. That's the only miracle that they all four cover. But as far as the Gospel of John goes, because each of the Gospel writers have their own agenda, and I say that in the right respect, they are telling their story as they saw it under the inspiration of God. But John has a point for adding this this miracle where we find it in John's gospel. And it marks a very crucial change in the way that the whole narrative takes place. It was a good place for us to stop, having spent months studying, then we spent the summer in the book of Judges, and now we come back. Well, if you were going to take, let's say, a, a chisel and split the book of John in half, not necessarily by weight, but by the message. This would be the the transition point. You could say it's the hinge on which the story of John's gospel turns. And what's taking place is we're going to go from probably the greatest moments of his popularity and his acceptance. It's been building since we saw him introduced by John the Baptist as the lamb to take away the sin of the world. People are following him in droves now. He's never been more popular. But at the same time, by the end of this chapter, chapter 6, we're going to see one of the greatest moments of offense. Those people are going to start turning away. They're not going to be following him anymore. And the attitude from the officials are going to be more gathered and focused against removing him from this planet than ever before. All that takes place in chapter 6, and we'll be in chapter 6 for a number of weeks. So what we'll do this morning, these 15 verses, is we'll work on first understanding the miracle as John describes it, and we'll use a little bit of uh, help from the other uh, gospel writers as well, because and it shouldn't come as a surprise to us, John is going to leave some things out, and he's going to give us a few things that the others don't have as well. But once we've understood it, then we'll focus on asking the question, what implications does this passage of Scripture have to us here and now? So back to verse number one begins with after this in the ESV as we listen to it read, or sometime after this if you have other translations or something other similar. It's a a vague expression. It's actually establishing sequence rather than chronology. And basically all it stands here for is to let us know that this took place after what took place in chapter 5. 
very simple. Uh, what happened in chapter 5 was a miracle at the pool of Bethesda, and then a whole conversation that took place afterward. But our best guess with the other gospel writers giving us input is this is about six months later uh, chronology, um, as far as chronologically. Jesus had withdrawn from the noise of the towns, John tells us, and the growing crowd of followers that were gathering, and he had positioned himself on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, John tells us, and then went up to the mountain, or uh, the hills might actually be better. Um, Driving through uh, the lower parts of the Blue Ridge Parkway on my way to uh, TVR, talking with uh, someone in the car um, who'd also been or was familiar with a trip to Israel. We both commented, these are mountains. Israel has hills. (laughs) Now, in certain places, you can go to other places where you feel like you're on the surface of the moon. There's nothing green as far as you can see, and it looks more like the Grand Canyon. But as far as the northern region, those hills aren't quite like the Smoky Mountains or parts of the Blue Ridge Parkway. And where they're headed is what is known today as the Golan Heights. Mark called this a solitary place, and where Jesus sat down with his disciples, as John says, apparently was to be alone with them. And John tells us why. We see that uh, in the passage we just read. The crowds had gathered and were following because they saw the signs, the miracles. John had already been careful to tell us, and we don't need to forget it, that a good number of these people were following a spectacle. That they believed in what Jesus was doing, but he didn't necessarily believe in them yet. It was a shallow uh, arrangement And we're going to see the shallowness of this in its full scale as we move on in these weeks through chapter 6. But that's the purpose of his removing himself. Then John tells us that the Passover was at hand. That's a feast of the Jews. It was very near. This is important to us. And here's where we'll have to be good students. Because we're not Jewish. We don't know much more about Passover than the Jews know about the 4th of July. But both of them have to do with our independence. Passover is when they were uh, carried out of Egypt. Uh, Our Independence Day was when we shook off the restraints imposed by Britain. And it's the very same thing. It's a very nationalistic gathering and there's a lot attached to it. So we'll have to do a good job of trying to put ourselves in their shoes because that's going to color up some of the things that are said and why they come to the conclusions that they do. Look at verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? That's when John seems to get to the point. He's done his setup and now we're into the story. And it's Mark that tells us Uh, What John left out, that after the crowd had run around the north side of the lake, it's about a 13-mile long lake, so you can travel and walk around it. It takes you a very long time, but he's on one side, he goes to the other, and the crowd are looking for him, so they follow around the top part, the north, and catch up to Jesus. And Mark tells us that he taught them for some time. 
John leaves that out. John just goes to the meal. But the reason why the meal is important is because he's been teaching them most of the day and no one has had anything to eat. Just imagine if I kept going till, I don't know, maybe 4 o'clock this afternoon. We'd need to figure out what to do. And uh, the question that's asked here is a reasonable question. But we, the audience, know that it's Jesus asking and he knows everything and he's got a purpose for what he's doing. And only John tells us specifically about Philip and Andrew. The other accounts don't mention them by name. But in this case, Philip would be precisely the person to ask. Because he was from Bethsaida. We learned that in chapter 1. And that's right near where they are. So this is the fellow that has or should have local knowledge as to where one might get a big pile of bread. Now when we get to verse 6, that's where it gets interesting. And would you know it that verse 6 in John 6 is the only place in all the New Testament you can check that Jesus ever asks advice in any shape, form, or fashion. Now this is kind of different, of course. He doesn't need advice. He knows what he's doing. But what he asks is interesting enough. Actually, it was verse 5. 6, he says this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So is Philip honest? Is he sincere? Is he interested? Does he give a good answer? Is Jesus messing with him? I don't think he's messing with him. It says he's testing him. And we want to look at testing as, oh no, on the spot, pop quiz, microphones in my face. This is a test. Is it passed? Is it failed? Is it graded? Well, he doesn't know he's being tested. Jesus knows what's going on. Look at it more like this. Philip has been given an opportunity, a chance, to think through some things. It might be more important knowing what happens next and what Philip thinks about the next day and the next week based on what was asked immediately prior to what happens. And you'll find that to be the case in your walk with Jesus. He will ask you questions. He will test you. And you'll be unaware of it. But certain events will come back to you later after you've seen him do something only he could do. And you'll see how that fits with things that perhaps only you could do. And the relationship between that trade-off. A lot of times he won't do what only he can do until we've done what only we can do. Uh, It's kind of like your kids can't really clean the house like you want it cleaned. But you're not going to do all of it, are you? That's why you brought them into this world, to help out. (laughs) So you expect them to do what they can do at this point in their lives, and then you will do what you can do. And as a good father, this is what our Father in Heaven does for us. So this is important. We can make a whole message out of this. Um, One of the commentators that I read is G. Campbell Morgan. almost a hundred years ago as far as the things that were written. And then he talks about 60 years prior to what he wrote that I read this week that he remembers a message by George Mueller and that was his title. But he himself knew what he would do. And this is a man who would run an orphanage with nothing but at the last minute would have plenty for everybody. It's a testimony to what the Lord can do. And what he's about to do with... The little boy's lunch in the Lord's hands. That's another title of a message 
that helped shape my understanding of how the Lord moves in what he does. So here's what Philip says in verse 7. He answered, 200 denarii, that's the plural of a denarius, worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. That's an honest answer. One denarius was uh, one day's pay for a common laborer, so about eight months' worth of wages. Food was the greatest expense at the time, maybe two-thirds or three-quarters. So consider 200 denarius, roughly what it would cost to feed a family for eight months or so. But the crowd here was so large, what Philip is saying is that if he used... A normal man's eight-month food budget, it wouldn't be enough for everybody to get a bite. So what he's actually saying is, what difference does it make? Who cares where we would get it? We don't have the money to buy it if we knew where it was. So he's a very cerebral thought. He's, he's sized this up, and this is his estimation. And I confess that that's probably exactly what I would have done. Okay, Jesus asked me a question, and he think through this and give him the truth. Uh, boss man, I might be able to tell you where we could get it, but there's a bigger problem than that. We don't have money for it. Uh, I'd be eight months worth of my paycheck to cover such a thing, and that would be a snack for them. Uh, we're, we're outclassed here. Then we got verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Uh, each time we see Andrew in the New Testament, he's always bringing somebody to Jesus. That, that seems to be his characteristic. Perhaps the boy had voluntarily offered his lunch to the disciples. Perhaps the boy was nearby and he's pointing his finger and making a comment. Perhaps what Andrew is saying is meant to be a joke. Because the, the point is, it's ludicrously, ridiculously insufficient for what we need it for. And what he's got here, that's interesting enough to comment on. They're barley loaves. Um, most of the time when we hear about barley, it has to do with what they cook beer out of. Because it doesn't make the best bread. We use wheat for that. Though we'll put barley uh, or other... Uh, seeds in that uh, really good stuff they got, you know, that's got it all mixed up in there, um, cost a lot more. Um, but this is not that. This is the bread of the poorer class. Doesn't mean that it's not good. It just means that it was more affordable. And this idea of fish here, ichthus is the, is the word we have generically for fish. It's a different word. This has to do with pickled fish. And everybody I've ever talked to about an Israel trip that hadn't been on the trip before, I tell them a lot of things, but in there I usually try to give them at least a general warning at breakfast. Leave the pickled fish where it's at. <laughs> that will be with you until dinner in a bad way. It just pickled fish It was not something. But, but see, here's the difference. These people preserved their fish that way. They were used to it. They loved it. Uh, I'm particularly fond of a pickled egg, but most people aren't. They, they I'm looking, I've seen your faces. <laughs> um, and this was probably modern equivalent of a sleeve of saltine crackers and a can of sardines. It was an affordable, portable way to feed yourself 
at an event like this. And that's what the people looked at it as, an event. Some of you don't eat sardines. You know why I like sardines? Because my mama did. And the reason why she likes them was because she ate them on fishing trips with her daddy. It's, it's part of your past or it isn't. You get it or you don't. And this right here, I wouldn't be surprised if Whole Foods one day doesn't decide to bring back barley loaves and pickled fish and charge 18 bucks and the hipsters line up in droves <laughs> just to buy it because they think it's cool now. But in this spot, this fit their culture. This was about as normal and basic of, a, of an afternoon lunch. The bigger meal would have been at dinner. But that's what they've got. So the joke that is told in verse 8 and 9 is, by John's account, completely looked over. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And we're told by the other authors that there were women and children there. This is specific to men, so this is more than 5,000. Now, John tells us there was much grass, right? Well, Mark tells us the grass was still green. And that kind of gives us a little window for the date. Being that it's Passover is near, it's probably somewhere between March and April. Jesus has them sit down in groups of 50s and 100s, we learn in the other records. And that's likely for two reasons. One, it'd be a lot easier to serve people who are sitting in, in one spot. And it might cut down on what could be a stampede. I mean, think about it. You've been in lines where there's food, and if you've got any order to it, you figure that out. Telling the PNC arena, all right, line starts here. Because that's how many people it was. I think it's 19,000 so many and change. This is 20,000 people, perhaps, with the women and children. One line isn't going to cut it. They're going to need to organize this thing. This is lovely for me. Jesus organized it. Um, and in a, a very specific way. And uh, you moms here in a minute, are, there's something for you too. He's going to tell them to get the leftovers and pull them together. Some of you that like leftovers. Some of you don't. But there's something for everybody here today. Verse 11. Then Jesus took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, here it is, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, filled baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So notice that Jesus begins by giving thanks. Before he does anything, he thanks the Lord. And uh, it may have gone something like this. This is gathered from what would have been similar in their culture and prayers that they would use for such a specific uh, purpose. Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who bringeth forth bread from the earth. That would be uh, blessing God. Now, technically, and don't get mad at me if I ruin something you've done all your life, okay? Jesus did not bless the food. He blessed his father for the food. Now, I've actually seen people get cute and sell food that was pre-blessed. It should be pre-thanked the Lord for. Because I've heard it a, a thousand times. All right, let's bless the food. Like, let's thank the Lord for the food. That's, that's the way it's technically supposed to go. I can see you're looking at me. I just ruined it. 
Isaac ruins everything at some point in the sermon. But John downplays the actual miracle. For those of us that want to know how this happened, we're just not given any details of how. It's just that he distributed, and the key words are, as much as they wanted. So whether or not he broke it and it grew back, or uh, they just handed it down the line and it never went away, or like the oil in the the widow's uh, vessels that just never gave out, we're just not told how it happened, but we know what happened. It was also Jesus who tells them to gather the leftovers. He told them to sit down. He told them to gather the leftovers. And this might have to do with a specific demonstration to his disciples about his precision control over the physical universe. I think that might be one of the grander miracles, just from a from a logical or, or an engineering standpoint. These baskets could not have been but so big, and there are 12 of them for 12 disciples who didn't see this coming, and we wouldn't have either. But to think that you're going to feed, and use this as a visual, the likes of the PNC arena, and only have 12 basketfuls left over? And that's, of course, more than they started with. But if you've ever been involved in trying to figure out how much food to feed a larger group of people, that to me is the scariest thing. I know how to cook something, but having enough or too much, you've got to throw it away, or not enough and somebody didn't get some, portioning is tough for me. Well, it wasn't tough for the Lord. It seems it was just enough to feed everybody and give the disciples one amazing illustration of what he can do and to do it just right. So now for the reaction. All this boils down to the last two verses. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is their conclusion, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world, exclamation point. They think they've got this figured out, some of them at least. And then verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. He spends a lot of time alone, and he's going to be doing more of this as we go along to get away from the group of people. So there are at least three points that I believe John is making in this portion of chapter 6. And uh, there are more than these, but here are three, and this is what we'll use to try to understand how we are to be obedient uh, to what we see John has said in the first 15 verses. What we're going to key off of, if you want to circle words in your Bible before you make notes, is verse 14, prophet, the prophet. Your translation has probably got a capital P because they have a specific person, Moses, in mind for that verse. And then the word king In verse 15, a prophet and a king, that's what what they've got on their mind. Remember, it's July 4th, it's Passover, very nationalistic time of the year. They've seen miracles, they've eaten a massive meal. So the patriotism is probably at an all-time high. But here's point number one. From verse 14, Jesus is better than the prophet. And this is a point that they've missed. In fact, they're going to miss all of these. What I think is being taught here 
the crowd did not get. And John has been doing that over and over and he'll continue to do that. But there were at least two ways these people would have come to the conclusion that they did in verse 14. They said, this is indeed the prophet after they'd been fed this big meal as much as they wanted. One has to do with Deuteronomy 18, where Moses says that the Lord has said that I will send a prophet like unto Moses. That at some point in the history there will be another. But the point is, Jesus is better than that. He might be in the spirit of Moses, but he's not another Moses. They were looking for another Moses. And to take them not out of Egypt, but out from under the rule of of Rome. Jesus is better than that. Jesus has not been described at all as a prophet. In fact, John the Baptist was asked, hey, uh, are, are you the prophet? No, I'm not the prophet. And there's some prophetic importance and weight assessed to all this but this is not the role he's going to do he's better than that so it's a reductionary uh, equivalent and it's a good thought to think that and then there's another situation if you want to turn here uh, I invite you to but this is second kings four and the reason why I say turn to it is because uh, this uh, is one of those passages kind of gets stuck between others And you might not even know that it's here. But this is another reason why these people would have been thinking what they thought and why we probably would not come to that conclusion. But it's almost like what they're seeing is a rerun of something they know from their past. In this case, uh, with Elisha. Remember Elijah and then there was Elisha? Well, this is 2 Kings 4. And uh, beginning in verse 42, a man came from Baal, Shalashah, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, same kind of bread, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. I don't see any fish here, but we see bread. And Jesus is going to be talking about the bread of life because they're going to be talking about the bread of manna. You know, it goes back to Moses. Verse 43, but his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? Because it was 20 loaves. 20 loaves isn't enough for a hundred men. So he repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. Just significant as to the leftovers, perhaps. So he set it before them and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. They have a precedent for this in Israel's history. So this is probably the other reason why they would make this conclusion. This is the prophet But what they've got here is a better wonder worker than Elisha, wouldn't wouldn't you say? Which is the bigger deal? 20 loaves for 100 men or 5 loaves for 20,000 men? Well, families, 5,000 men. He's outclassed. Elisha is. This is a better miracle worker. So Jesus is better than the prophet. What they're doing is they're shaping what they're seeing into... Images that they think adequate, but Jesus is here for something far larger. Number two, Jesus is better than a king, and that's from verse 15. We're actually going to get two points out of verse 15 here. It's Independence Day, thereabout, give or take. And there had been revolutions. They would come and go. That's what Barabbas was, remember? He was caught up in this type of revolutionary activity. 
And they're going to turn him loose in order to crucify Jesus just a year from now. And by the way, the way the Passovers are mentioned, this would be one year out from Christ's death during Passover. Last year of his life out of, out of the three years of his ministry. And there doubtless are some men, and that might be the way they're described as 5,000 men here, who would be more than willing to kick off what would end in a true revolution. They have found what they think is their revolutionary, which would be Jesus. They'd seen the miracles, they'd eaten the food, they're thinking what could prevent such a person from being the powerful liberator that so many children of Israel have longed for for generations. Maybe this is the time. I mean, they're watching miracles, the likes they've never seen before. You could see where this would be where they were going. But here's what's going on in the mind of Jesus, and here's what explains why he walked away, hid himself. Where's Jesus? Oh, he's left the building. Don't know where he is. Where'd he go? Have no idea. But he wants nothing to do with this. Jesus knew that the way his kingdom would triumph would not be led by beating the enemy in warfare, but by dying and raising from the dead. He's here for spiritual warfare, not physical warfare. He would go to Jerusalem not to wield the spear and bring the judgment, but to receive the spear and bear the judgment. Does that make sense? He's going to Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world. After all, he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. What's better than a king? A lamb. But that's not what they're seeing here. They don't, they don't get that, and we don't necessarily fault them for it, given what they've seen. They haven't had time to hear the rest of the story. So the miracle, rightly understood, pointed them to a Messiah, to God not to a prophet, and to the heavenly kingdom, not to an earthly kingdom. That's a lot to take in theologically, but that's what's being taught. Here's number three, and this has to do with how Jesus responds to all this. He walks away. That has to be huge. So point number three is Jesus is better than who you want him to be. And I'm going to have to uh, explain what I mean by that. Because there may come a time where you want him to be all he is. You remove yourself out of the uh, rider. (laughs) But 15, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him a king. Just listen to that. I mean, how many times have you been told, hey, if they would have accepted him as their king, it'd be a totally different story. But this king is not the king he came to be. It's a different kind of king. They have in their mind one king. He is here to be a different king. And he has no interest in being the king that they want him to be, which has to do with liberation from Rome and feeding them a great meal and doing tricks and taking them back to where uh, the good old days of, of Israel. Remember, he is here for their sin. That's why he's here. He's not here for kingship. It won't happen that way. So Jesus walks away, and by the end of this chapter, most of these people will have walked away from Jesus because of a grand misunderstanding. 
Do you like being misunderstood? I think it's about the worst of things this world and our lives have to offer to be misunderstood. You mean something and it's probably important to you. And somebody else sees it as something completely different and you're at a loss as to how to explain to them that what they see is not what you see and you're just flat out misunderstood. That's chapter 6. And it starts with this miracle. It's surprising how often we will do the very same thing that these people had done and try to make Jesus into something that he's not. I mean, after all, this is the culture that has gone from sinners in the hands of an angry God to your best life now. Some of you know what I mean by that. Some of you maybe not. But what we've done is we've reshaped the image of Christ and what the gospel is and what the church is useful for. And at the end of the day, preference probably shapes our decision in where and how and when we worship than the truth of what's found in the pages of Scripture. We can do that. You'll hear people say, well, I wouldn't serve a Jesus like that. Like what? Like the Bible describes him or like you think he should be? We can't be cherry picking here. He is who he is. These people are cherry picking. And what does he do? What is the most loving thing Jesus could do to a group of people who want to turn him into a king that he's not designed to be? He just walks away. You say, I don't think that's loving. Oh, it wouldn't feel like it, would it? I mean, what better time to have the Billy Graham invitation? Then at the end of this meal, identified him as the prophet, a better miracle worker than Elisha. And what does he do? At the precise moment he could gather every last heart of this whole crowd, he disappears because they're in the wrong place. And even if he gave them the truth, they wouldn't listen. Remember, he'd been teaching them all day and they still didn't get it. So in the way our own Lord spoke and taught, we see a hesitancy to work the strings and the tools of emotion, even nationalism, pride, and falls back on another time and another place where I can speak to their head and their heart. And maybe they won't get it until they see the whole thing after I'm dead and their sins are paid. Like, I don't know, say walks to Emmaus where he takes them back to Genesis, explains the whole thing, their hearts burn within them, and it all makes sense. But right here, it doesn't make sense. And for so many, spend years in church, it doesn't make sense. And we have to be patient and wait on the truth of what we know in Scripture, that what we're going to see just a few verses later, the ones the Lord gives His Son will never be lost, and they'll come to Him. Because God has chosen that they will. That's another sermon for another time. But here's what Morris said, a commentator. He was that king already that he should be. And he'd come to open his kingdom to men. But in their blindness, they try to force him to be a kind of king that they want. Thus, they fail to get the king they want. And they also lose the kingdom he offers which is a tragedy. But the story's not over. And we'll see. Those who are his, he will have. But here's the point. You might want to write this down. 
Jesus will meet you where you are. But it will always be on his terms. Jesus will reach down and, and find the most lost sinner. But salvation is according to his plan. It's his death on the cross that will be your righteousness. And no other way. In this case, Rome is not their enemy. Go back to Judges. They are their own enemy. He's here to defeat them. Their sinful heart that they don't even know. That's the real enemy. He'll engage that and he'll do that on Calvary. So Jesus is better. And the question is, do you agree? Jesus is better than a king. He's better than a prophet. He's better than the Jesus you would make if you had a, a, a design suite to make one just like you wanted. He's better than that. Do you understand why he came to earth? That he came for your sin. The only way to take sin away as the Lamb of God was to go by way of the cross. It was the only way it could be paid for. And as having paid for it, it's our place to repent of that sin and receive his forgiveness. This is a great story. It's only getting started. We've only gone through the first 15 verses of a chapter with 71 verses. We've got some time to spend. But remember, this is a hinge. People are going to misunderstand our Lord. And we're going to make sure we don't. We understand it and we obey it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for what it means to us. We ask your continued help in understanding it and your continued strength in being obedient to it. Lord, may we never misunderstand what you meant. That you would come from heaven to this earth. Lord, perish the thought that we should tell you what you should be doing. May we repent, fall on our knees, receive your grace and ask what we should be doing. Thank you for your word. Seal it to our hearts. We ask all this in your name. Amen.